Welcome to Haunted Talks, the official podcast of The Haunted Walk, offering ghost tours and paranormal adventures in Kingston, Ottawa, and Toronto, Ontario. My name is Jim Dean. I am the creative director, and we really appreciate you joining us for today's episode. On November 30th, 1948, as John Baines Lyon went for a walk with his wife along Somerton Beach near Adelaide, Australia, he didn't give much thought to the drunk man sitting slumped by the seawall, who had briefly raised a shaky arm as the couple had passed by. Half an hour later, another couple noticed the same man lying in the same position. Looking down on him from above, the woman could see that he was immaculately dressed in a suit with smart, new, polished shoes, odd clothing to be wearing at the beach. He was motionless, his left arm splayed out on the sand. The couple decided that he was simply asleep, and that is why he was not reacting to the mosquitoes that were swarming round his face. He must be dead to the world not to notice them, the boyfriend joked. The next morning, as Lion emerged from an early swim in the ocean, he notices a small group gathering on the beach, and as he draws closer, he realizes the slump man has not moved from the spot where he saw him the night before. He is clearly dead. This sets off one of the world's greatest unsolved mysteries that has baffled and confounded investigators for over 70 years. The Somerton Man Mystery. Even more intriguing, due to recent developments in the case, there is a good chance this mystery could be solved in the very near future. But before we get to that... Where does the summer go? As hard as it is to believe, we have reached September and the Labor Day weekend. And this is your last opportunity in 2021 to join us at Upper Canada Village in Morrisburg, Ontario. Very limited tickets remain for this Friday and Saturday night. If you're interested in one of those few remaining spots, be sure to jump on our website right away to get your tickets. Tours continue throughout the rest of the month in Kingston, Ottawa, and Toronto. Of course, as we look forward to the Halloween season soon to follow. We do expect to make a major announcement in the next week or so about a new site we're going to be offering for paranormal investigations with our partners at Phantoms of VR for September and October, so stay tuned for that. For information about any of our tours, paranormal investigations, or at-home online experiences, please visit our website, which is hauntedwalk.com. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Haunted Talks so you know when the new episodes are coming out. And if you have a moment to leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to us, it would be greatly appreciated. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, all at Haunted Walk.
as the police arrived on the scene at Somerton Beach, a number of observations were made about the deceased. He was well-dressed, but had no hat. There were no obvious injuries to his person. The area around the body showed no signs of a struggle. There was a half-smoked cigarette on his lapel, as if it had absent-mindedly fallen from his lips. The police took the body to the hospital, where the doctor who declared him deceased suggested a heart attack was the most likely cause of death. In his pockets were found a few personal items, a bus ticket, a train ticket, but noticeably missing was a wallet, money, or any form of identification. An examination of the victim's stylish clothing revealed something quite strange. All of the labels had been removed. Not a typical practice, even for second-hand stores at that time, before mass-produced clothing became so readily available. Also, who wears a double-breasted suit to the beach? Some initially speculated that the man may have been washed ashore or had come from out of the ocean, but his shoes were so smartly polished and clean, not looking at all like ones that had recently spent time in salt water or even at the beach. Raising the possibility that the man may have been killed elsewhere and simply dumped where he was found. During the autopsy that followed, the attending physician decided that the victim had died of heart failure, likely due to some kind of poisoning, and various samples were taken and sent for testing. The police took his fingerprints, but found they did not match anything on record. And there were no missing person reports in the area that fit the description of this man. The Caucasian body measured about 5 foot 11. He had gray hazel eyes and reddish blonde hair, just starting to gray at the temples. He was healthy, clean, and well-muscled. His toes showed some unusual characteristics, as if he had worn pointed shoes or boots for a long period of time. His age was estimated to be around 50. He had a few small scars, but no tattoos or birthmarks that might lead to easy identification. The body did not show signs of having been moved. The scientific experts had a great deal of trouble trying to figure out if and what kind of poison may have been used. Professor John Cleland, the Emeritus Professor of Pathology at the University of Adelaide, informed the inquest there was nothing to indicate death from natural causes. Quoting here, Every poison we have suggested seems to have been discounted. We found no evidence of vomiting. A possible stain on his trousers did not look like vomit. The internal organs were somewhat congested, but not deeply congested, as might be expected from failure of respiration. Most of the common poisons would give vomiting or evidence of convulsions, something which would have drawn 
attention to the deceased. The cyanide would be very quick, and no bottle was found or any smell of cyanide. It is difficult to find any poison that fits the circumstances. Still no closer to an ID, the police began to reach out to nearby hotels and railway stations looking for unclaimed luggage. They got a hit when a brown leather suitcase turned up at Adelaide's Central train station. It had been checked in on the morning of November 30th, the last day the mystery man was seen alive. The items inside were also somewhat unusual. There was a laundry bag full of clothing, slippers, a shaving kit, a screwdriver, a cut-down table knife, a stenciling brush, a pair of scissors, a sewing kit containing orange barber's waxed thread, two ties, three pencils, six handkerchiefs, a button, shoe polish, a cigarette lighter, two airmail stickers, one eraser, eight large envelopes, one small, and toothbrush and paste. In quantity, it was certainly enough for a few nights, maybe even a week. But surprisingly, there were two ties, but no shirts. The item which most interested the police was the orange waxed barber thread, as it was not sold in Australia. Identical thread had been used to repair the pocket of the Somerton man's coat. Waxed thread is not usually used to mend clothes. It must have been some kind of emergency repair. It seemed very unlikely that the barber thread in the suitcase and the barber thread in the Somerton man's coat were not in some way connected. Also, the clothes were his size and the slippers would have fit his feet. The laundry bag which contained the clothes, did have a label, which had the name on it, T. Keen. When the police discovered there was a missing sailor named Tom Reed, initial excitement turned to disappointment. The shipmates who viewed the body, it was not their friend. As the Somerton man seems to remove his clothing labels to help conceal his identity, many speculate that he left the name T. Keen on there because he knew he was not him. Which raises another question. Who was T. Keen, and why did the Somerton man have his laundry bag in a locker at a train station? Attempts to find T. Keen were unsuccessful. Around the same time, the police found a bizarre clue that they had initially overlooked when examining the body in the fob or small front pocket of the pants was found a tiny piece of rolled up paper with the words Tamam Should printed on it which roughly and eerily translates to It is finished. It had been ripped out of the last page of the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam the theme of the Rubiat, which is a book of poetry, 
is that one should live life to the fullest and have no regrets when it ends. The subject matter led police to theorize that the man had committed suicide and placed the torn paper in his own pocket as a kind of hidden literary suicide note. But how ominous would it be if that note had been placed there by someone else? Someone who had killed the mystery man. As the investigation continued, the Adelaide police began to reach out to law enforcement agencies across the Western world, including the FBI, to help identify the man. No one seemed to know who he was, or was at least willing to admit it. He was like a ghost. The police were also still trying to find the original book from which that piece of text was torn. On July 22nd, almost seven months later, Ronald Francis came forward that his brother-in-law had left a copy of the Rubiat in his car's glove compartment after finding it on the floor of his car, which had been parked near Somerton Beach on November 30th, 1948. The torn out page was not only an exact match under microscopic comparison, but two new possible and puzzling clues came to light. The first was a faintly written telephone number written on the book's back cover. The number traced to a woman, Jessica Thompson, who lived in the area the body was discovered. She told police, while training as a nurse in Sydney several years before, she had given a copy of the book to a male acquaintance, and it was a popular gift around this time. The police at first thought that man might be who they were looking for, but they were able to track him down in Sydney and found him very much alive, and he did confirm Jessica Thompson's story. But that is not to say there was no connection between the nurse and the mystery man. She told police she was not home on November 30th, but one of her neighbors reported that a strange man had appeared at their door asking after her. When police did show the plaster cast of the body that was taken to Jessica Thompson, she said she did not recognize the man. But officials noted her reaction, saying she was completely taken aback to the point of giving the appearance she was about to faint. And she only looked at it once, and then would not look again. Publicly, she denied knowing anything about the man or the book. Some had hoped that perhaps after her husband's death, she might finally identify the man. She didn't. And if she did know anything else about this mystery, she has taken it to the grave. 60 Minutes Australia did an episode on the case in 2013 in which Kate Thompson, the daughter of Jessica Thompson, said that her mother had told her she had lied to the police. Jessica did know the identity of the Somerton man and that his identity was also known to higher levels than the police. 
If that is true and accurate, what would compel her to remain silent in the eye of the storm of one of the world's great mysteries for almost 60 years? What kind of secret is worth protecting that long? Along with the telephone number, investigators found five lines of seemingly jumbled letters on the back of the book. For example, the first line, which began with a W or an M, continued R-G-O-A-B-A-B-D. The apparently nonsensical series of letters and the inability of the police to identify the man led many to speculate that the letters must be some kind of code, indicating the mystery man may have been involved in spycraft. Sadly, no professional or amateur codebreakers have successfully deciphered the message. Some believe the capitalized letters might refer to the first letter of words, and the codes are really acronyms, much like LOL or TTYL. But more commonly, it is believed that it must be the kind of code where the sender and the receiver have an agreed and understood meaning for each of the letters, and to crack the message, the codebook would be needed. If it was spycraft, many point out that 1948 is really the beginnings of the Cold War, and if he was a spy, it was likely from somewhere behind the Iron Curtain. Of course, if true, the powers that be would never admit to it. Just like you hear in almost every spy movie, you will be disavowed if you are caught. The other strange thing about the book was it was determined to be the first English language edition published in 1859, making it rare and valuable. Not only something that might catch the eye of a casual observer, but also not the kind of book one would typically rip pages out or write gibberish upon. Over the next 10 years, there were many news headlines claiming to have finally solved the mystery. These false starts were inevitably followed by retractions, sometimes even the next day. Finally, on March 14, 1958, came the reluctant conclusion from the coroner that he had to close his inquiry, saying, I, the said justice of the peace and the coroner, do say that I am unable to say who the deceased was. He died on the shore of Somerton on the 1st of December, 1948. I am unable to say how he died or what was the cause of death. As a result of this finding, much of the evidence in the case was thrown out, including the suitcase and the book. While this is very frustrating to modern-day investigators who have more types of technology and investigative tools at their disposal, to be fair to the police, they generally did not keep evidence if there was no ongoing investigations or really any certainty that even a crime was committed. Over the years, many elements of the case have been thoroughly researched, leading to additional speculation. In March 2009, Professor Derek Abbott 
the director of the Center for Biomedical Engineering at the University of Adelaide, set up a task force in the hopes of solving the mystery. When his group researched the Somerton man's cigarettes, which had been placed in an army club packet, they found the cigarettes inside were actually a much more expensive brand than the army club. It seems unusual as people usually transfer cheaper cigarettes into more expensive cases, unless the cigarettes were a gift or a few from someone else's pack. Professor Abbott's discovery raises the possibility that poison might have been given to the Somerton man in the form of a cigarette, and inhaling the poison might have changed its effects, and why it was found almost haphazardly on his lapel. Professor Abbott and his team also considered the Somerton man's teeth, and found that he had hyperdontia of the lateral incisors, a genetic disorder that is only apparent in 2% of the population, making it both rare and significant. There was also something unusual about the man's ears. A forensic anthropologist at the University of Adelaide provided an analysis that established he had a upper hollow called the Simba, which is larger than the lower hollow called the Cavum. For most people, it is the other way around. This combination of hyperdontia and the unusually shaped ear also appears in the photograph of Jessica Thompson's son. With her phone number in the Rubiad and the body found within 400 meters of her home, could the mystery man be a relative or even the boy's father? The chance that this was a coincidence, that the two men had these two same rare characteristics, has been estimated to be in the range between 1 in 10 million to 1 in 20 million. Very long odds at best. As you might expect, beyond the most popular explanation, which is that the Somerton man was involved in clandestine operations of some sort, There are a lot of different theories people have suggested over the years, which are quite interesting and have varying degrees of probability. One of the most interesting theories about the mystery involves time travel. According to this theory, the Somerton man was the great-great-grandson of Jessica Thompson, who had traveled back in time for some unknown reason, but had died, either because of an allergic reaction to the unfamiliar environment, or perhaps even murdered by some competing futuristic enemy. Along similar lines is the belief that he was some kind of alien-human hybrid, which would explain his strange feet, ears, and teeth, and why the coroner had such a struggle to identify the cause of death, because the victim was not quite human. What makes this a particularly fascinating moment to cover this case is that after 70 years, we may be about to identify the Somerton Beach Man. Earlier this year, on May 19th, 2021, the remains were exhumed to allow for DNA testing. 
technology that far from existed at the time of his death. To talk us through the possibilities is Dr. Lars Peterson, a biologist and instructor at the University of Calgary, who previously joined us back in episode 47 to talk about the science of zombies. Dr. Peterson, welcome back to Haunted Talks. I'm happy to be back with you, Jim. Now, we have a pretty fascinating case here that seems like it might be on the verge of being solved. So I thought it would be great to have you on to give us a little background about DNA and how DNA is recovered and and used and, and those kind of things. But maybe where to start would be, I think many of us are are familiar from crime TV shows and things of that nature about how living people may leave DNA around to be discovered. How does the situation change when we're looking at someone who is deceased? And in this case, uh, of the Somerton man who has been embalmed and then buried for 70 years. What, What does that look like? How is DNA evidence collected in this case? Yeah, so... It's a great question. Um, I can sort of start with the basics here, um, which is that, you know, as as we know, DNA is the uh, genetic material that's carried by all of our cells. And in order to extract DNA from a person either alive or dead, uh, you need to obtain a sample of that cellular material. From a uh, living person, this can be um, collected from any living sample of cells get this from blood, you can get this from hair, you can get this from uh, skin cells that are left behind. But in the case of somebody that has been dead for a while, uh, particularly somebody who uh, has decomposed quite a bit, the best bet for getting at this material is uh, by going into um, bone tissue or teeth tissue, because uh, this is some of the soft tissue that is going to be the last to decompose and degrade. And so in the case of a um, a body that has been embalmed, under, under normal circumstances, DNA is actually a very robust molecule, uh, and it takes quite a while for it to break down on its own. Um, there is even some evidence that suggests that small fragments of DNA can still be read from well-preserved tissues up to about a million years old. And this is uh, in, in part because the bonds that hold DNA together don't break apart very easily. Uh, without the help of some DNA digesting enzymes. Um, so in tissues that are subject to decomposition, bacteria can provide some of these enzymes to break down various molecules in the tissue uh, in order to make en- uh, energy for themselves. Uh, but given a choice, they're going to choose some of these easier molecules to attack, like proteins and fats. The complication, though, <laughs> that arises when you embalm a body is that Formaldehyde uh, that's used in the embalming fluid uh, works to preserve the body by breaking down all of the um, proteins in the body that might otherwise speed up decomposition. So when you break down all those proteins, the bacteria that are going to come in later are going to have fewer options for food and are going to instead resort to eating up the genetic material. And so embalming, even though it is a technique used to preserve the tissue a little bit actually in the long run speeds up the degradation of that DNA. And when you're, you're talking about teeth and bone tissue, we're talking about kind of the 
the, the inside of your bones or the inside of your teeth. Is that, is that what you mean? Yeah, there are small pockets of, um, of tissue. So obviously uh, within the larger bones, you have bone marrow. Um, and this bone marrow is largely inaccessible to some of these decomposition uh, bacteria. But also within the teeth themselves, uh, there's going to be a little bit of that tissue left in uh, sort of the, the root of the tooth that, again, is going to be uh, fairly well protected from decomposition. So usually those in um, the cases of long decomposed bodies where really only the bones remain, um, those are the two sources that we would go for getting the highest quality DNA, let's say. Given what we know about the condition of the body, 70 years in the, in the ground, the embalming fluid that was used... How confident are you, or not at all, I suppose, that the scientists and the researchers will be able to find some of that material in the Somerton man's remains? Yeah, so this is a, this is a tough question. The trickiest part of this whole process is, is going to be uh, finding that good quality, uncontaminated DNA that we'll be able to use for uh, for that kind of analysis. So in order to do this kind of analysis, you need to be able to build a DNA library that contains um, some copy of the entire genome of an individual uh, in order to do the, um, the type of, of genetic profiling that we might need to do. Uh, and so in the case where the DNA degradation is severe, it may not be very possible, but uh, at the very least, probably assembling that library uh, could take in the order of months to do. So I think that there's probably a good chance that they'll be able to get some DNA out of this, but um, it's hard to say. It's hard to know what they're working with. Let's be optimistic for the sake of solving a mystery. And they do find this genetic material that they're able to use, as you say, to kind of sequence the genome uh, or start making comparisons. What information will investigators actually get? Is it the DNA can point to a direct person and we can they will just know immediately, aha, well, this is clearly so-and-so? Or does it provide more of a rough guide or familial connections to the individual rather than pointing a specific finger? Yeah, this is another great question. So the way that modern DNA profiling is done um, is, is by uh, analyzing a complement of elements that exist in our chromosomes that are called uh, short tandem repeats or uh, STRs. Um, these STRs are uh, repeated sequences um, that exist in different lengths that are scattered throughout our genome and give rise to essentially a unique uh, DNA fingerprint for every individual. I can give you a, a simple example. Um, you can imagine that uh, your mother has a pair of chromosomes and one has uh, on it an STR of, let's say, length one, uh, and the other chromosome has one of length two, and she inherited both of these from her parents. Likewise, your father is going to have inherited uh, some STRs, maybe we'll say length three and four. So you might then get uh, STR of length one from your mom and of length three from your dad. Your brother might get one and four, and your sister might get two and four. So it's, it's pretty random, but it's it's sort of this uh, combination of whatever is available in the chromosomes in your mom and uh, what's available in the chromosomes in your dad. Now, the reality is that we have about half a million of these STRs in our genome. So 
the forensic DNA analysis, even though it only tests maybe uh, a few dozen of these, um, can actually pinpoint pretty accurately um, a, a fingerprint for an individual and the probability of two people having the exact same uh, fingerprint of these uh, of these short tandem repeats is next to zero with the exception of identical twins. So despite the high numbers of these repeat elements that make you sort of the individual uh, unique individual that you are, you're always going to have 50% of these in common with each of your parents, uh, as well as with each of your siblings and any of your offspring. And then each generation away from that, uh, you'll see that cut in half. And the further away you get, the more sort of tenuous the link becomes between family members. In a way, this is kind of how these uh, DNA ancestry kits work. They use um, some statistical methodologies to determine the likelihood that your ancestors uh, originated from particular regions of the world based on those sort of fractional similarities that you have in your chromosomes to others that live in those regions. It's interesting you brought up ancestry as kind of in these DNA testing programs that that now exist. Are scientists then actively using those to, once they have this information, they'll then take them out to, to places like that? Do you need a, a repository of this information? Or as you said, is it more easily distinguishable than having to search for a needle in a haystack kind of thing? Yeah, I think these ancestry databases are definitely one source that, um, that the forensic scientists could go to. Uh, there are uh, a huge number of these publicly uh, accessible databases uh, that have uh, individual sequences as well. So the forensic scientists should be able to access uh, those kind of things pretty easily in order to place sort of the region that this individual is uh, is originating from. I guess the tricky thing here is, you know, if you think about a fingerprint that has been lifted uh, from a crime scene, that fingerprint is really only useful if you have a match to compare it with. And the same is sort of true with a DNA fingerprint. It leaves a few more clues um, that you might be able to uh, follow to narrow the search a little bit. Um, but ideally, you know, you'd want to have DNA samples from suspected familial connections uh, to compare against uh, in order to see whether or not there are uh, any direct links. Very interesting. You, you mentioned earlier you, you thought it would take a few months um, for them to kind of do that initial uh, probing to see if they had had the right material. As you look at it from more of an overhead, what is your estimate as to how long the process might take then? is Are we re ready and primed for an announcement any day here? Or does that, that second part of the process, the kind of the researching, the matching, take even longer? What do you, what do you kind of see as far as, as far as a timeline or potential timeline is concerned? I mean, it's all going to come down to the amount of time that it takes for the forensic scientists to extract good quality DNA uh, that they can build these uh, these DNA libraries from. The actual techniques that uh, that are used to perform these analyses uh, can be done and and completed in a matter of days. the The technologies that we have for sequencing, um, the technologies that we have for doing these kind of um, routine profiling of, uh, of DNA it can be done in you know hours to days. And then there's some bioinformatics that'll have to be applied uh, in order to um, take those sequences and, and align them and compare them against databases. Um, but I think that the, uh, 
the major roadblock is is going to be getting that high quality DNA in order to uh, perform those analyses. I gather that the body was exhumed sometime toward um, the middle of May. Uh, so, you know, now it's September and I'm frankly a little bit surprised that we haven't seen uh, any sort of uh, announcement. And it could be that they're waiting to actually publish uh, the data first. But uh, assuming that the DNA is there and the DNA is good, it should be it should be pretty quick. Wow, it's incredible to think about the advances uh, in science and technology that essentially allowed a case like this, which has baffled people for so long, to be figured out so so quickly. And I think we certainly look forward to that. And I hope uh, I hope we can have you back on the show if we hear word, uh, and maybe you can explain a little bit of the science to us once we hear what the results will be. But uh, Dr. Peterson, again, it was a pleasure to have you on the show, uh, and thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me, Jim, and I'm happy to come back and talk about this uh, if there is something to talk about in the future. Like all great mysteries, the Somerton Man continues to baffle and captivate imaginations. And in the episode today, we've only scratched the surface. If you're interested in going further down the rabbit hole, there are a lot of other small pieces of evidence and theories just waiting for you to discover online. One of the major challenges with the Somerton Man mystery is the lack of good photos of the body itself. And in October, Canadian cinematographer Daniel Vosher teamed up with Derek Abbott and together, using artificial intelligence software, provided a updated or more lifelike image of the man. And that image is used in our image for this episode. So you can find that on our website at hauntedwalk.com or on any of our social media channels or by searching for Daniel Voshart and the Somerton Man. Does he look like anyone you know? We hope to return very soon with a follow-up episode where this mystery is finally solved and maybe all of the questions are finally answered. A big thank you to Dr. Lars Peterson for joining us to talk all about DNA. And thank you for joining us for the episode. Information about our ghost tours and paranormal adventures can be found on our website, hauntedwalk.com. Just a reminder, it is the final weekend to join us at Upper Canada Village in Morrisburg, Ontario. As always, a special thanks to our Haunted Talks team, including our outstanding audio editor, Michelle Dennis, and Kevin McLeod at incompetech.filmmusic.io for the additional music. Full credits available on our website. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. All four at Haunted Walk. And be sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to us so you know when the new episode comes out. And we're always appreciative. And be sure to read every single review. Until we meet again, sweet dreams. Sweet dreams.